Hello, I'm Sue Nelson and welcome to a rather chilly Planet Earth podcast because it's minus one degree, even though I'm inside. Well, that's because I'm at the British Antarctic Survey in Cambridge to discuss new species in some of the most inhospitable places on the planet. We'll also have news on why a project is tracking thunderstorms as well as gaining an understanding as to why fish conservation can be improved. North Sea cod are managed through a suite of measures, really. I think, at the last count, there are probably 750 different technical regulations oh <laughs> that, uh, that apply to fishermen fishing at different times in the North Sea. Well, it's not often that science stories go viral, and when scientists discovered large numbers of marine species in the Antarctic, nicknaming one of them the Hoth Crab, well, that certainly had something to do with it. It was all part of a UK project involving universities, the National Oceanography Centre and the British Antarctic Survey. Now, they were exploring the East Scotia Ridge, which is on the seabed of the Southern Ocean in Antarctica. And the UK team led those amazing discoveries. And I'm very pleased to be with two of the team, marine biologist Katrin Linzer and Ali Graham, who's a geologist, both from the British Antarctic Survey. Ali, that's not the normal operating temperature inside your offices, is it? It's not normal. I'm normally sitting in quite a comfortable operating conditions behind my desk. But So why is it, Katrina? Explain exactly where we are. We're here in the Marine Research Aquarium, and here in several big tanks that look like big bathtubs, we keep the Antarctic shallow water marine animals that our divers have collected at Rossera Research Station in depths of down to 35 metres. Just looking over the edge here of one, we've got some rather beautiful bright red starfish. We have starfish here, some big white clams, lots of brittle stars, a few fish. The animals we found on the East Coast Ridge are at two and a half kilometres water depth. So the animals there are living in, in almost pitch blackness, very cold conditions, so they're very different to the species we're seeing here. And we go over to the specimen store now to have a look at them. There we go. Oh yes, much quieter and thankfully an awful lot warmer. <laughs> yes, what we can hear is the heating. So huge big stacks here. It almost looks like a, a warehouse with a library in it. Yes, this is where we keep all the Antarctic marine and terrestrial fauna that we collect at the British Antarctic Survey. What I have brought out today are samples of the animals we collected. For example, the hoff crab. <laughs> so the what famous hoff crab. crab. So we open this little tub and take one of the specimens out. Oh, it's quite small, isn't it? That could easily fit in the palm of my hand. They're white and pale, presumably because there's no light down there. This is a small female. She's about six centimetres tall. The large males were up to 12 centimetres tall and they had big claws. But also the females, you can clearly see a really hairy chest and along the bottom of their legs. So it's not just the males then that had the hairy chest, it's the No, the other females have it too. Ali, tell me a little bit about where these creatures were found because they're beside some very unusual structures called hydrothermal vents. The East Coast Ridge itself is an area where the seafloor, the the lithosphere, which is the hard outer shell of the Earth, is actually extending and stretching. And where this happens, magma from the mantle actually upwells and along the ridge itself you get 
volcanic activity. And because the crust has a lot of water in it, that water is, is heated geothermally like geysers in Iceland. And eventually through fissures and through fractures and faults in the crust, this hot water finds its way out and it, it finds its way out through vents. And these vents look almost like a sort of termite's nest, tall, tapering structures, but with these enormous plumes of smoke coming out, which I, I assume are sulphurous. Exactly. It's um, a very good description. They are tall, conical sort of chimneys. The waters that come out of these vents are enriched with minerals, which are extracted from the, from the mantle. The chimney is formed of precipitates that come out of the water that's emerging from the, the ocean floor. The reason you get these black smokers is because you have these sulphides coming out and they precipitate straight out into the ocean and make this black, thick smoke. How many new species did you discover? Well, we're still counting them because we don't know. We do know we have, so far, 15 species that are clearly linked with the hydrothermal vents in the Antarctic and none of these species have ever been found before. But in the land, we call it the then periphery was diffuse warm flow, we found another 25 to 30 species that might be linked with the vents or might be Antarctic deep sea species and we need to check if these are new to science as well. You've got a couple of other little jars here. These are large paltospiroid gastropods. Snails. snails. Big snails. This specimen looks quite pale but now has been in alcohol for two years. It was dark bright red and this bright redness indicates that the species is likely to have endosymbiotic uh, bacteria that can use the sulfur from the winds as an energy source. So instead of eating nice green salad in your garden or lettuce, they would eat of the bacteria. You said two years. Was that how long ago that you were doing this project, or is this from a different research ship or collection time? This is when we were actually down to the Southern Ocean and did the discovery, but this shows the time you need to make sure that your discoveries are new and get the science results out. Ah. And the piece I loved, personally loved most is in this large tub bag, because here what we sampled is actually a kind of diorama what you actually now see emerging from the tap, and you can hear the alcohol floating off and dropping in, is the top of the chimney. And in the top here, you see a hole of about four millimetres. This is where the hot, smoking hot water would come out of temperatures up to 380 degrees. Wow, so that's the top of a hydrothermal vent. Yes, that broke off and we found in our sample boxes. And you see next to it are the barnacles and then all the other creatures like little snails and little it sea anemones. It looks like a hydra's head. Yes. So this is how we would find it, but even then much larger than you can see here. Now, you use a, a remotely operated vehicle in order to get down and, and look and produce the film that you've got, amazing footage that you can see of these smoking vents underwater. Ali, you were also involved as a geologist in sort of mapping the, the ocean floor itself and produced a map that looks very much like a sort of an atlas at sea level, really, in terms of different colours showing the different altitudes. But instead of mountains, they're actually the, the hydrothermal chimney vents. That's right, yeah. So about a decade ago, we knew these sort of vents were there. Within an area of, say, sort of uh, 10 kilometres or so, we, we sort of honed down to a, that sort of level. 
But really our understanding of the seafloor and where these vents might be was completely unknown. So over, over the past few years we've had two research trips to the East Coast Ridge. The first one we aimed to actually map out the sort of regional seafloor. We did this using sonars from the underside of our ship. On our second research trip, we took the remotely operated vehicle ISIS down to areas where we, we knew there were vents and we did even more detailed mapping of the seafloor with a, a smaller sonar. And what resolution then did you produce? Initially, our maps were maybe down to, say, a 20 meter sort of size so we could see things that were larger than around 20 meters on the seafloor but not necessarily a hydrothermal vent well the vents themselves are only f- less than a meter in width so we would have totally missed them even from our, our ship mapping the first initial mapping we did the second trip we could actually make maps down to things almost the size of a shoebox so we actually started picking up blips on our map and when we looked at them in detail in, in three dimensions, we could see these were the actual individual chimneys themselves. So the geophysics actually directed us straight to where these vents were. It's an obvious question, but for scientists it's like, well, new species, wow. But is it important on the grand scheme of things? We know from some Antarctic deep water species that they seem to be the origin of life of the deep sea fauna globally. We don't know this about the hydrothermal vents. We know that in the last 30 million years, the Antarctic marine fauna was almost buried off from the non-Antarctic through the cold water and the Antarctic circumantarctic current. These are so specifically adapted animals. We have lots of hydrothermal vents north of the Antarctic. These were the first found in the Antarctic. How do our species link in to the global ones? Are they the ancestors of everything or not? We don't know. And then the big question is, where did life on Earth originate at the start? Could it have been in the deep waters in very, nowadays, toxic, sulfuric environments? And this is why this research is so exciting and important. Katrin Linzer and Ali Graham, thank you both for revealing just some of the treasures in store for scientists in the future. And you can read about that research on planet Earth online. This is the Planet Earth podcast. After recent common fisheries policy negotiations, British fishing fleets can land more fish, but with fewer days at sea. This allows for a practice called cod avoidance measures, so that boats can fish for haddock or whiting as long as they eliminate cod from the catch. And it's an issue that involves scientists, conservationists and the fishing industry. But all too often fisheries research focuses solely on fish biology. As a result, Marine Scotland Science and the University of Aberdeen are involving fishermen in a three-year research project to better understand the decision-making made at sea. But, as I soon discovered, conserving cod stocks is a complex business. Kobe Needle is a mathematician and group leader for the Fisheries Systems Group at Marine Scotland Science. North Sea cod are managed through a suite of measures, really. I think, at the last count, there are probably 750 different technical regulations oh <laughs> that uh, that apply to fishermen fishing at different times in the North Sea. The main regulation is a combination of a quota that is based on recommendations provided by scientists such as ourselves. There will also be effort restrictions, so fishermen will be given a certain number of days in which to catch a certain amount of cod. What we have on top of that now are a series of gear measures, so if you're fishing in certain areas of the North Sea, towards the north, you have to have 
things like 120 millimeter mesh size in your in the cod end towards the end of the the net there are also regulations governing other gear measures such as square mesh panels which are in, designed to encourage juvenile cod and other fish to escape from the net so they can live on to spawn and grow, and grow larger. In more recent times, under the Cod Conservation Credits Programme, which is a Scottish approach, we've had measures such as real-time closures, which are areas approximately 225 square nautical miles. They're closed for three weeks at a time. The closures are triggered by observations of large numbers of cod being caught, either by surveys or by the fishing fleet in a particular area. Vessels aren't allowed to fish there, and the idea is that cod within that area get a chance to do whatever they were doing in that area and then move on. What would you say is the aim of your joint project with the University of Aberdeen? What what we're trying to do is to develop improved models by which we can evaluate the likely performance into the future of fisheries management plans. There are three components to any one of these uh, evaluations. There's a biological model, which tracks the development of fish populations as they swim around in the sea. There's a management model, which models how managers apply their management plans. And then within the evaluation, we also need a model of how the fleets will respond to those management measures. Marine Scotland's science is working jointly with the University of Aberdeen and fisheries economist Alison Little is on that project. And I'm with Alison beside a port in Aberdeen. In terms of your part in in this project, what will you be doing? I'm going to be looking at characterising the fishermen's decision-making in in relation to real-time closures and then using that to look at the possible consequences. I'm going to be developing a computer model so that we can try and develop a tool to simulate the impact of real-time closures on the fishing fleet. Is this the first time that this particular aspect of marine management is going to be assessed? Yes, it is, um, from the decision-making side of the fleet. We just simply don't know what happens to the fleet and what response they have to these management measures. I know it's just the start of, of the project, but do the fishing industry welcome this sort of, of research? Yes, they've been very supportive and proactive in supporting this research. How will you actually track the behaviour of the fleet, the fishing industry fleet themselves? Does this mean you'll be going on board? Hopefully I'll go on board the vessels and also use um, satellite data that tracks the position and course and speed of these vessels so we can see where they're moving. What about the fish themselves? How will you know where there are large catches compared to others will you be taking information from the fleet or can you use satellite data to also tell you where there are large areas of fish we'll be able to link the satellite data to landings data so we can correspond the landings to where the fishermen have been fishing at the end of the three-year project the research will produce a risk-based simulation model of what is driving the changes in fleet dynamics in the north sea we're getting much better relations between scientists and fishermen now than we ever had it used to be when i started you know whenever it was 15 years ago it was it could be quite confrontational because we were seen as merely passing on management measures from on high but now i think we're trying to involve the fishing industry much more than was the case in the past and this project is a very good example of of doing that Kobe Needle from Marine Scotland Science and fisheries economist Alison Little from the University of Aberdeen. 
It's been a stormy period in the UK lately with gale force winds and localised flooding causing travel disruptions and loss of power to thousands of homes. But not everyone is sorry to see stormy weather. Robin Hogan is a professor of atmospheric physics at the University of Reading and he's working with the Met Office on a project to develop a statistical database of thunderstorms that will help improve storm predictions in the future. It's called DIMEX, which stands for Dynamical and Microphysical Evolution of Convective Storms, and it involves real-time analysis. So I began by asking Robin how you go about tracking a thunderstorm. What we do is we use the uh, Met Office radar network, and that takes images of the uh, rainfall over the whole of the UK every five minutes. And from that, we can see with incredible detail what the surface rain rate is, and we can see how we can track one storm from one five-minute period to the next uh, and work out where it's going. And so typically a storm will last for maybe an hour or sometimes two hours, and so we're able to see how that storm evolves and particularly how the surface rain rates get larger as the storm gets bigger, and then as it sort of breaks up later on in its life, it will then decay away, and we can sort of use computer algorithms to follow that storm through its evolution. So it's relatively easy to follow. How easy is it to simulate That's one of the biggest problems of predicting uh, floods in the summer. A model of weather forecasting has to capture lots of different processes to get convective thunderstorms correct in order to get the surface rain rate. So it needs to uh, represent things like hailstones, it needs to uh, capture the updrafts correctly. That's the vertical winds that are carrying the particles up inside the cloud. And you often get combinations of supercooled water droplets. So this is droplets that are below zero degrees, but they're still liquid. And they will freeze at some point, and the models have to capture the time at which that occurs. And all of these processes are important for working out the surface rain rate, which is what we want to get for flood forecasting in particular. So what is this project aiming to do then? Well, what we want to do is to use the uh, capabilities of the Chilbolton Research Radar, which is in the uh, the south of England in Hampshire, to capture the evolution of uh, thunderstorms in much more detail than we've ever got before. And that will then be combined with a modelling component, which will be using the Met Office's model, which is you know, quite phenomenal resolution, actually. Over the whole of the UK, it has a one-and-a-half-kilometre grid box size. And by combining the observations and the modelling, we're, we're able to then see in which aspects the model isn't doing very well to uh, hopefully improve it. Why does it need improving? You say one-and-a-half kilometres. I mean, that's quite amazing. That must cover even the smallest of villages. Well, even though it's 1.5 kilometres, models are only as good as the data that go into them. And so it's relying on, you know, weather balloons that are only launched every 12 hours, for example. And the other thing is that the processes still have to be very much approximated. So in particular, at one and a half kilometres, you're still having to represent the fact that as a convective storm, so a thunderstorm rises through the atmosphere... For example, it will have to represent mixing of air between the cloudy air and the clear sky next to it at just the right rate in order that the right amount of water gets up to the top of the troposphere. And if you don't get that right, then the cloud will will not go too high or it will go far too high. 
and uh, you will get the wrong amount of rainfall coming out of it. So how do you improve then your measurements, your data? If you're only as good as the data you put in, how do you get better data? The uh, Chilbarton radar is really where we're coming from. So currently when we uh, see a weather forecast on the TV, we see measurements by a number of radars around the UK that have a one degree beam width so their resolution at a distance of 60 kilometres is something like one kilometre. Now what the Chilbolton radar can offer is the ability to scan the three-dimensional structure so not just the surface but also up to a height of around 10 kilometres which is typically how high storms get. This radar has a, a quarter of a degree beam width so that means that at 50 or 60 kilometres distance it can see clouds with a resolution of 250 metres so much higher resolution and one of the things that's key for how these storms develop and evolve is getting those wind flows into the storms correctly and uh, the Chilbolton radar as well as being able to measure the intensity of rainfall is also able to measure the wind speed and so it can really see the flows of air that are acting on a very small scale and are acting to develop and build the storm. Now you've been already analysing various storms. That's right, we uh, have had something like eight very good days. In your terms, a good day then is a storm. (laughs) Absolutely, the more storms the better as far as we're concerned. We are hoping to get a total of 40 days over an 18-month period. We're actually interested in convective uh, clouds in winter and summer, so the Met Office also has a problem with snow showers, in particular coming from uh, the east so we're, we're happy to study those when they come along and I'm sure we'll be able to uh, say some interesting things about the performance of the model there. So we are hoping that flood forecasts can be made more skilful, which is certainly of, of great economic benefit for the UK. Robin Hogan from the University of Reading. Do remember to check out our Facebook page and you can follow us on Twitter. This has been the Planet Earth podcast for the Natural Environment Research Council. I'm Sue Nelson. Thanks for listening. <laughs>